New Perspectives on Irish History, Dreams, Themes, Myth and Ecology. This series looks at Irish history from different perspectives, starting from the time when the island of Ireland was a great forest. It talks about the first inhabitants, their lifestyles, and how they differed from the world we live in today. The series seeks to give perspectives other than the military-focused accounts of previous historical series. In this programme we talk to Kevin McCrory about the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and its aftermath, and we talk to Frank Egan about some of the implications of Ireland's membership of the European Union. Music, poetry and song are rich reservoirs which record and reflect the past and the cultural values systems of previous generations. Hedge schools, travelling schoolmasters, musicians, poets and harpers help to preserve the culture, language and traditions in the most difficult of times. The most famous of these was the blind harper, Turlock O'Carrollan. 1670 to 1738. He wrote his songs in the native Irish language. Sean O'Reader began a revival of this music with his Misha Era and Kyoltori Coolin initiatives. Eamon the Butler was also part of this innovation and established his own group, Kyoltori Lion. Turok O'Carrollan, most famous of the Irish bards, he is justly celebrated as the champion of Irish traditional music, best known for the jigs and planksties, preserved in manuscripts transcribed from the playing of folk musicians up to a hundred years later. He became blind after an attack of smallpox in his late teens, so as was customary at the time, he was instructed in harp playing. After three years, equipped with a harp, a horse and a guide, he set out to make his way as a travelling musician. Balladeer Ronnie Drew sings about Irish rebellion and the risen people. The history of Ireland is a history of oppression and the struggle of the people against it. A history of grasping landlords and conniving politicians who sought to deprive the people of their birthright. At regular times in Ireland's past, these grievances have boiled over and the ordinary people have reacted in the only way open to them, rebellion. And I say to my people's masters, beware. Beware of the thing that is coming. Beware of the risen people who shall take what you would not give. Did you think to conquer the people? Or that law is stronger than life and than men's desire to be free? We will try it out with you. You that have harried and held. You that have bullied and bribed. Tyrants. Hypocrites. Liars. Billy Maguire of the Irish Republican Brotherhood talks about the key role which that organisation played in Ireland's struggle for independence. Well, um, the Irish Republican Brotherhood were found, was founded in 1858 by James Stevens down at 16 Lombard Street on St Patrick's Day. And that's very important that the people should know why we celebrate St Patrick's Day. And all the symbols of the state, you know, the tricolour flag that flew over the GPO in 1916 and taken down by Dermot Lynch and kept in Vaughan's Hotel until the 21st of January 1919. You know, the harps and the, and, and the, uh, the sovereign seals 
and the foundation documents are the 1916 proclamation and the sovereign constitution and yeah. you know East really and 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 the shamrock they're all the symbols of the state the sovereign republic of era and the green flag that the, was captured with Irish Republic on it, it was the Citizens' Army. James uh, uh, Connolly also regarded that as his flag, and that was captured by uh, the Crown forces. But the tricolour flag that Dermot Lynch took down in 1916 from the GPO was never captured by anybody. And it's, not only is the flag of the nation, it's the flag of the Sovereign Republic of Era, and that's why it's so important. And uh, for the reorganisation of the Irish uh, Republican Brotherhood, uh, we, uh, in 1917, uh, we bought Vaughan's Hotel, 29 Parnell Square and Granby Row, on behalf of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and Oglin Ahern. That was the headquarters, GHQ, yeah. and that's where the state was founded. Yeah. And they founded the 32-county election of 1918 that established the sovereignty of the 32 counties and the democratically elected TDs to Dáil And that was all ratified by the will of all the people of Ireland uh, in, on the 21st of January 1919 in Vaughan's Hotel and in the Cabinet Room, in the Mansion House and the Round Room by Dáil And all those... Um, Inina Hearn and Common Amon and Nafina, all those, uh, they're all part of the sovereignty and they were all set up by the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And the GEA is an Irish Republican Brotherhood organisation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Sam Maguire and the Lee McCarthy trophies, which I'm uh, re- related to. But coming up then to, we'll go up to the founding of the Ulster Volunteers and uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood then they founded the Irish Volunteers as a consequence of that. And uh, what they did was, uh, I know in in 1914, which is also 100 years, they were looking for uh, volunteers to form a circle and cell to collect the intelligence on the Crown Forces. And my uh, granduncle, Tom McGuire, he he was sent to Calcutta in India. And um, and Sam McGuire went to and got himself into the post office in London, and all the intelligence on the Crown forces from 1914 right up to uh, up to the War of Independence was 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 he brought that Sam brought that every Saturday to Vaughan's Hotel. At that stage in 1914, we only had a, a, an office in there from Mrs. Vaughan, and uh, in 1917, with the after the what happened in 1916. Um, we purchased Vaughan's Hotel for the reorganisation of the Irish Republican Brotherhood in Oakland Ayrn yeah. and the 32 county election of 1918 yeah. so then on the uh, 21st of January as we said that was the important, that's our independence day mm-hmm. and that's in the cabinet room of the mansion house and the round room by Dáil Ayrn and that's when everybody became here, all our Irish people became sovereign citizens and were no longer subjects to the Crown of England. You were a, a sovereign. And the foundation documents are the 1916 Proclamation and the Sovereign Constitution. Yeah. In, in 1919, King George V declared that uh, Dáil Éireann was an illegal assembly. Oh. And all the citizens, well, the citizens, uh, the people in the, nor- in the six counties that we describe it now, they yeah. all voted for a 32-county a sovereign republic and then king george v he he usurped the sovereignty of the of the citizens he took it on himself that oath of allegiance and he declared that dolairn was an illegal uh, assembly and he imposed uh, 
the 26 and 6 counties of Ireland as an orange free state and, and uh, uh, a, a British apartheid system for the 26 and 6 counties of, of Ireland. Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland through us summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organised and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organisation, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open military organisations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army. A group of men with determination caught an empire by surprise. And through the streets of men were marching, they rallied with their hopes and fears. And the end of boys came marching for their leader, Padraig Pearce. This extract is from the poem and song The Ballad of James Connolly by Derek Warfield and Peter Rafter. Maybe I don't understand this thing that makes these rebels die. Yet all things love freedom and the spring clear in the sky. I think I would not do this deed again for all that I hold by as I gaze down my rifle at his breast. But then, then a soldier I. Here are extracts from Johnny McAvoy's songs about the deaths of two Irish patriots, Michael Collins and Wolf Tone. Rosary beads Like teardrops on your fingers Friends and comrades standing by In their grief they wonder why Michael in their hour of need, you had to go. A martyr for Ireland is grave as no stone. His name seldom mentioned, his virtues unknown. Warriors. The Irish have long been regarded as a warrior race that rebelled periodically in an organised way against their oppressors. Heroes were plenty and when needed were not wanting in the cause of freedom. Names like Cúchulain, Brian Boru, Fionn McCool, Con of the Hundred Battles, his son Art McCann and his son Cormac McArt, as well as Conor Moore, Vic McHugh Red Hugh O'Donnell Art and Henry O'Neill, Robert Emmett, Camus Sullivan Bear, Michael Davitt, Theobald Wolf Tone, Michael Dwyer, Sir Roger Casement, Dick McKee, Kevin Barry, Lord Edwards Fitzgerald, Father John Murphy, Henry Joe McCracken, O'Sullivan Rossa, James Connolly, Thomas Clark, Podrick Pierce, Joseph Plunkett, Sean McDermott, the Moss McDonough and Kant, Michael Collins, and many others, too numerous to mention. This is me. Embracing all that embodies the women in who I am. Sharing the most intricate part of my being. I need not validation for what I hear, feel, or see. Validation is me. Ireland's heroic women in history included 
goddesses like Dana, Bridget, Maka, Hera. They also included Queen Maeve, Grania Whale, Anne Devlin, Countess Markievicz, Lady Gregory Maud Gawn, Eva Gore Booth, Rosie Hackett, Elizabeth O'Farrell. Inina Heron, Daughters of Ireland, was a radical nationalist women's organisation led by Maud Gawn from 1900 to 1914 when it was merged with the newly formed Cumann Orators and peacemakers. When opportunities were favourable, great protagonists used methods within existing institutions to achieve their objectives. Jonathan Swift is regarded as a main promoter of nationalism. Daniel O'Connell championed Catholic emancipation in the English Parliament. Michael Davitt moved from warrior role by means of an armed struggle to that of effective negotiator and parliamentarian. He was co-founder of the Land League, resisted eviction of tenants demanding fair rent, fixity of tenure and free sale, working closely with Charles Stuart Parnell, effective negotiator and parliamentarian for home rule. Isaac Butt and Henry Grattan played similar roles. Balladeer Luke Kelly asks the question, for what did the sons of Roisin die? For what died the sons of Roisin? Was it fame? For what died the sons of Roisin? Was it fame? For what flowed Ireland's blood and rivers that began when Brian chased the dame and did not cease nor has not ceased with the brave sons of sixteen? For what died the sons of Roisin? The guns are silent now The children safe in bed I go to the garden To look at the stars On this clear night Kevin McCrory talks about the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland in the 1960s. Remember that internment had been introduced and um, yet there were nearly a thousand um, uh, people were held in uh, custody in, in uh, Long Cash, uh, arrested without charge or trial and held. In fact, I was held briefly um, for as organiser of the Civil Rights Association and um, the formula was you were uh, arrested, you were held in a, a police interrogation centre, you were interrogated by the police um, and then, uh, as a, there was a four, if they had already determined you were to be interned, uh, you were then put in, in my case, into the Crumlin Road prison, um, which is uh, now um, um, a visitor centre, uh, but you know, then was a totally different sort of a venue. But you weren't interned as such, were you? I was interned. Oh, you yeah, were interned. I was interned. Uh, yeah. But what I'm, I want to make the point that you were brought in front of the governor and the legal basis on which you were held. Now, legal basis, remember, is uh, you, you, it was it was in fact the, the, the illegality of the thing was reflected in the fact that the governor said to you and he had a set formula that you have been you are going to be held because you uh, have acted, you are acting or are about to act in a way prejudicial to the peace and preservation of good order in Northern Ireland. 
Here are short extracts from the songs Sunday, Bloody Sunday and The Men Behind the Wire by the Wolf Tones. Through the little streets of Belfast in the dark of early morn British soldiers came a-running wrecking little homes with scorn Hear the sobs of crying children dragging fathers from their bed Watch the scene as helpless mothers Watch the blood fall from their head Armoured cars and tanks and guns Came to take away our sons But every man must stand behind The men behind the wire Frank Egan talks about how recent EU treaties have affected Ireland's sovereignty. I think um, when we joined the EEC, we joined a, a trading bloc, essentially. Um, it didn't have any military element to it. It didn't have any defence element, all of which have crept in since. Uh, it didn't have a currency. Uh, it didn't have a, an incipient army. Mm. Uh, so it didn't have very many of the trappings of, let's say, a state, in inverted commas. Yeah. Um, one of the techniques that the EU uses uh, to advance its own cause, uh, they've, they've two things really, I suppose. Treaties incrementally whittle away at, at national sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, that's fairly obvious at this stage now in hindsight. Uh, and the other thing they have is they have the European Court of Justice or the ECJ, yeah. which is constantly extending the remit of both the court and the commission. Yeah. And we have a situation now where the Commission, which is unelected, is the only body that can initiate legislation within uh, the European Union. Totally undemocratic, obviously. Yeah. N- not only that, but most of the directives, regulations, etc. that come down to us uh, are never seen by politicians of any hue. Uh, they're drafted uh, by civil servants, essentially, uh, European civil servants, EU civil servants more correctly. Uh, with the assistance of your corporations, who are the main consultants and who sometimes even draft these regulations. Mm. The situation at the moment is that France and Germany, if they combine, for example, with Poland, will outvote everybody else. Because it's on a population basis. It's, a, it's on a population basis, yes. Yeah. And are you saying that it shouldn't be on a population basis? I'm be saying that a, it shouldn't be. State basis. Yes, it should be on a state basis. That's, yeah. that's the basis on which we entered. Um, mm. I mean, uh, I think uh, all great empires eventually run their course, don't they? Yeah. Um, and people become better informed and that's reflected in changes in the political system within the countries or by some other mechanism. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I have to say at a personal level, I am pretty fearful of a belligerent EU yeah. um, because now they have common arms procurement policies. They're talking a lot of military stuff. They're beginning to interfere in countries. Um, yeah. that are not in Europe, but yeah. are not in the EU. Okay. So I think that would be a huge concern now. Anthony Coughlin talks about the implications for Ireland of the Lisbon Treaty. As, as most people know, there was this EU treaty, and this is a kind of re- reformed or revamped version of the EU constitution, which was rejected by referendum by the voters of France and uh, Holland way back in 2005. And that was a big slap on the a slap on the face, as it were, to those who wanted to push the European Union towards a kind of a super state, rather like the United States of America. And uh, so, that, you know, we had two years pause for reflection on that, and then the the heads of government and the, and the prime minister said we must we'll still push ahead with it, but in a new form. We will instead of replacing the existing treaties by a thing called the constitution, we'll amend the existing treaties. But it amounts to the same thing, yeah. and that can only be done by 
it requires a new treaty and, and that treaty will have to be approved in Ireland because in effect it, it would be giving the EU a, a constitution which would give the EU the, the form of a kind of super state for the first time and make yeah. us all real citizens of it. Yeah. And that has major implications obviously for in all sorts of areas. Anthony Cochrane lists the serious changes resulting from the implementation of the Lisbon Treaty by Ireland. It gives the EU the form of a, of a federal state for the first time, uh, superior to and separate from its member states. Yeah. And it will make us real citizens of that with the duty of obedience to EU laws and loyalty to EU authority. That's one important thing. To be, you can only be a citizen of a state, and of course states have their citizens, so now we'll be EU citizens in a real sense, not just a kind of notional or nominal sense up to now with all the implications of that. Yeah. The second thing is that it shifts specific power, lawmaking power, from the national state to the European institutions in some 68 areas uh, are matters. Now, all the EU treaties over the years have done this, but this is probably the biggest, the biggest shift of power uh, ever in that, and, and, and power will be given to the EU in relation to crime and justice, in relation to sport, in relation to culture, in relation to areas of public health, in relation to transport, in relation to public service, and so on and so forth. And each of these is worth uh, you know, going into in its own right, depending upon people's interests. Yeah. And then the third thing it does is it gives more power to the big states at the expense of the small, because this is a real, for the first time, lawmaking in the EU will be based essentially on population size. Up to now, each country has had so many votes. Yeah. Now, when we joined the EU, we had three votes, Germany had ten, so we were just one third of the votes of Germany. Germany's 82 million, we've got four million, and, and, and Germany's relative power, relative weight, and, and the weight of the big states like France, Italy, and Britain becomes much greater by comparison with the smaller and middle-sized states in making EU laws. Yeah. The fourth thing which it does is to remove the right of each of, of member states to have a permanent EU commissioner. As you know, the commission, the Brussels Commission, uh, is the body which has the monopoly of proposing all EU laws. The, the laws are made by the Council of Ministers and the, with various vote, weighted votes, but they're the proposed by the Council, by the Commission. It's very important for every country to have a, particularly for small countries to have a commissioner, but the commission lasts for a five-year term. So every 15 years, every state would not have a commissioner for five years at a time. So Ireland yeah. wouldn't be representing the commission for up to five years. Now you might say Germany and France and Britain would be treated exactly the same, but there's no doubt that the commission is far more important to smaller countries because bigger countries have, have other ways of making their influence felt, obviously, yeah. than just having a commissioner. So it's, it's always been accepted that the commi- having a representative of the commission is particularly important for smaller countries. And then the other thing, it, uh, the fifth thing it does, it gives the EU power to decide our, our, our rights, our human rights, our, 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 our civil rights, rights in all areas covered by EU law. That is by making the so-called Charter of Fundamental Rights legally binding. There's this setting out of rights. The European Court of Justice is the Supreme Court of the EU power to decide our rights in all areas covered by EU law. And now the majority of our laws come from the EU in any one year. So that would be a huge extension of the power of the court. Uh, and that would give make the EU court superior to the Irish Supreme Court and superior to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg so far as final interpretation of our rights under EU law is concerned. And then the last and sixth point is that there's provision in this treaty for a shift over from unanimity to majority voting by agreement among the governments. In other words, if the presidents and prime ministers at an EU summit agree, they can switch or shift rather um, a number of policy areas, eight in all, from from uh, unanimity to majority voting without having a new treaty, without going through ratification, uh, the ratification process again. So in that sense, it's a kind of self-amending treaty, allowing 
the shift from unanimity, where every national state has a veto, to majority voting, where individual national states can be outvoted by the others in a number of areas. Fintan O'Toole points out that important pieces of legislation are now passed by the Oireachtas, that is the Irish Parliament, without adequate scrutiny of their content and implications. There was one particular day, you're probably, I'm sure you're aware of it more than me, where there were three very important pieces of legislation passed the same day. Yes. Well, three very, very important, hugely important. I should have, each one should have had a debate of about three days, maybe. Well, th- this was exactly th- that day that I'm talking about. Well, you're right? talking about the same day. We're talking about the same day. The, the, oh, right. the, the, the first of July, right? Yeah, first of July. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just tell you that the three pieces of legislation that were passed that day. Well, first of all, there was a major international environmental treaty which was passed, yeah. the Stockholm Treaty. They could have been voting. They didn't. It wasn't. It literally wasn't debated at all, yeah. right? So the Carroll just said, we're, we're passing the, the, the Stockholm Treaty, wherever. yeah, 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 fine, fine, fine. It could have been a treaty to ban folk dancing, you know. They, yeah. they, they didn't know what they were voting for. Yeah. And then on the same day, right, you got the Central Bank Act, which is an incredibly important, very technical piece mm. of legislation governing the banks. You got the Planning Act, which again is kind of crucial. This was the response to the property bubble, you know, a huge yeah. piece of legislation. And you have the Civil Partnership Bill which was a very historic and, and, again, very controversial piece of legislation. You had yeah. three of those passed in one day. Now, you would look at it and say, God, this is the most productive institution in Ireland. Except, of course, that the reason all this stuff was passed was because there was absolutely no scrutiny of any of it. Fintan O'Toole says that we should take inspiration from the period from the 1890s well into the 20th century, when many important cultural and institutional structures were set up and are still operational today. Look at the last time in Ireland when something equivalent to this happened in terms of a, of a complete shock to the system in which people uh, had a political project and it, it collapsed very quickly and there was a sense of absolute despair about the political system and the political establishment. And that's if you, if you go back to the 1890s, right, where home rule was coming. We had a fantastic national leader in Charles Stuart Parnell. Uh, there was great hope in the country. There was people feeling, OK, we're going to get an Irish parliament. Then it all fell apart. You know, Parnell fell. The Kitty O'Shea affair happened. Home yeah. rule was, was rejected. There was absolute despair. In that period, right, everything that created the state happened. And a lot of organisations that are still thriving today came, came out of that. The GAA, the Irish language movement the cooperative movement, uh, the, the, the trade union movement, the, the feminist movement, you know, all of the things in civil society that actually kind of created 20th century Ireland came out of that despair because people said, look, we've got to get stuck in. We've actually got to create something for ourselves. We've come to the end of this programme. You have been listening to New Perspectives on Irish History, Dreams, Themes, Myth and Ecology, part of the Sound and Vision series of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. I'm John Houghton, and I would like to thank all those who took part in this programme and the research and production team, myself, Paul Loughran, Alan Weldon and Neil Doyle. The programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.